People have told stories of the strange and supernatural for centuries. Tales of the restless dead return to haunt the living. Whispers of damned souls doing the devil's bidding on earth. Rumors of inhuman things that still hunt the old forests, untouched by the glare of modern life. There may be more to these stories than you could ever imagine. Join us tonight as we delve into the deeper truth inside these mysteries. Hello comrades, hope you're all having a fantastic week. Uh, sorry for the delaying shows, it's been absolutely hectic here. Uh, with work and Isabella had a fever for five days so uh, obviously that messed us up for an entire week and um, she's alright now thankfully so turned out to be an ear infection so you know, it's all good these things happen you know right today's show then uh, came about actually by chance uh, Annalise came home from school and they've been learning about dinosaurs usual shit and um, she was asking me about pterodactyls and I went on, you know, as you do, Googled it, showed some pictures of them and that, and talk about them a bit. And I came up with um, a sighting by Cynthia Lee in the States, and she'd seen, or she believed she'd seen, this pterodactyl. Um, so I started reading that, and it was quite interesting. The description was really good, uh, actually. It made me think that she wasn't seeing just a large bird, um, because she describes the tail as being long, with this spade on the end, um, she I think she describes the crest on the back of the head, all, all kinds of things, and obviously the wings being like a membrane, uh, you know, like a bat wing rather than feathers. So it got me interested and I was reading along, and at the bottom there it mentioned uh, the fellow that we're going to have on today, uh, Jonathan Whitcomb, um, so I contacted him and he agreed to come on. Now he's been collecting stories, or you know, sightings, um, and he comes on today to obviously share a bit. A uh, bit of that information that he's gathered, um, and I think you'll find it interesting. If you do, well, I'll mention it at the end anyway. You know where you can find him if you f do find it interesting. Right, so a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, I want to say thank you to uh, about a few decent emails this week. So uh, particularly um, David Alonso. I just want to thank him for contacting me. I think that's the first person that's contacted me from, from France. So, thank you, sir. Uh, very nice email. Um, going on to iTunes, then. Uh, reviews. Northerners doing podcast. Uh, five stars. It says, brilliant podcast and interesting topics uh, presented by two hosts that often have clashing opinions that makes it all more interesting. Great podcast, give it a listen. Hi from Bristol, and that's from Mad Jack. So thank you very much for that. And then we got this one the other day. New fave podcast after only two episodes, uh, four stars. Again, that depends which episodes he's listened to. Yeah, we could go from his favourite one to his worst, uh, depending on the episode. But he says, love it. Nice to hear a good northern accent. Newly subscribed and about to hit a major binge listen on my stupidly long commutes. Good job, lads. So thank you very much for that. Neil, you know, that's where I listen to the bulk of my podcast as well. Uh, you know, I am a long distance delivery driver in the day. So that's where I do listen to my podcast. And I listen to 
a few different ones. So I sympathise with you there. Okay, right, without further ado, I give you Jonathan Whitcomb. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to speak to you after uh, some, you know, cock-ups with the time zones and all the rest of it. It's, uh, it's always a challenge to get someone on from the state, especially when you forget that you're in uh, British summertime. Um, yes. <laughs> so the obvious question is, how did you get into this cryptid science, yes. if that's what you want to call it? Yeah, the cryptozoology, um, mm. it's, it's a very narrow branch of uh, cryptozoology yeah. that I got involved with. It was in the year 2003. At that time, um, and it's been more than about 16 years now, at that time I was a forensic videographer. I helped uh, attorney firms, uh, what we call lawyers in uh, in Southern California mostly, and I used uh, my video skills to help them, and that's uh, when I, I first got in touch with a man from Texas who had been on, a, uh, on uh, one or two expeditions, actually two expeditions at least, in uh, Papua New Guinea. And that's uh, how I first got uh, information about uh, the strange flying creatures in that part of the world in the southwest uh, Pacific. Okay. So... I presume at first you didn't necessarily believe this, but well, just, yeah, normal doubts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then when you start to, because obviously I've done a little bit of research into this as well, and um, I think from your your research, I think you've you've got now is it thirty nine states in America that have reported these creatures? Uh, approximately, it keeps changing. So I don't recall exactly what it is in the United States. It's not close to all 50 states, but it's still most of them, yeah. by far, the great majority of them, yes. But that's a lot but more. Got, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot more than what I was expecting to uh, to read about. I thought this would be like maybe one or two sightings, you know, in the states, but, um, I mean, it's, it's massive. And then when you say like Papua New Guinea, these types of places, you expect, uh, you, you almost, you know, expect it from there. I don't, I don't know necessarily yes. why. It's a bit, um, yeah. Well, they're extremely remote. Papua New Guinea is, mm. is little explored, really. There's, uh, of course, scientists go on expeditions, of course, but when the scientists to a group, like from a university or some uh, scientific organization, goes on an expedition in Papua New Guinea, um, it's with a particular purpose in a particular part of that uh, island chain. Um, and it's very specific what they're there to do, and it's a limited time. So we need to remember that there's, there can be a number of things not yet discovered in, in the remote jungles. That's true. But perhaps, um, do you want me to go into my expedition there? In Absolutely, that? yeah. And this okay, is sure. the, the coolest creature there, the Ropen. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, the Ropen. Yeah. Now, I, I probably should mention this in the beginning. The world, the word we have now in English, uh, I, I, I if I do say so myself, I think I was part of the the reason why the word has become known is, uh, I'm, but I have associates that I work with all the time, so I don't want to take credit for this, but uh, the word we use in English now, ropen, uh, means a large uh, apparent pterosaur. Um, it's a cryptid. It's not officially recognized in Western science yet, 
but it's a long-tailed, large, uh, apparent pterosaur. But the word originally comes from one, only one language among many hundreds of languages in Papua New Guinea. And that language is, um, uh, Kovai on the island of Amboy. Okay. And that long tail is significant because when people think of, uh, you, you mostly use the word pterosaur. Um, yes. Most people it. think pterodactyl, don't they? Um, yeah. The pterodactyl yeah. had like a, a short tail, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of these uh, reports, which I've been reading, a lot of people are saying that they see a long tail, um, which, you know, if people are just making this up from popular culture, you know, things have seen Jurassic Park, that kind of stuff, then you'd expect them to, you know, the sightings to mimic what they've seen. And this, these accounts with the long tail and the spade at the end, and you've got accounts there of people seeing it with fear, uh, you know, slightly fairy on the body, which is, again, you know, unexpected to see in these sighting reports, but you've got accounts of those. So it all sorts of blends together to make this thing a bit more, um, I'm going to say the word real, you know, um, obviously, we, you know, these creatures, uh, they're a little bit different from the Bigfoot, the Loch Ness, not, not Loch Ness Monster, because that's a, that's a similar category as well, but the, the Bigfoot, the Dogman, this kind of stuff, because w- these creatures did, did once live on this earth. Um, yeah. So it's not too far-fetched, you know what I mean? It's like the Bigfoot, obviously, yes. you've got Gigantopithecus, uh, was, was a large ape there, so it could, could be, you know, cast off from that, but this, um, the fact, and we've still got lizards as well. Um, we've obviously got beards. Um, but yeah, go on. Tell us, um, tell us what you've heard from uh, Papua New Guinea, and tell us what you saw. Yes. Well, first of all, before we start, uh, perhaps I should mention that in English-speaking countries, uh, United States, England, Canada, Australia, and so on, uh, the common folk are not scientists, but the common folk use the word pterodactyl in different ways and at different times. So it's, it's really a general term. What usually what people mean, uh, when they say pterodactyl, they usually mean pterosaur, which is a general, uh, which is actually a scientific word for, for a particular type of animal that's assumed to have been come, become extinct um, a long time ago. Um, but in Papua New Guinea, I led a very brief light, what I call a light expedition. It was not with many people. Uh, just myself and one interpreter from the mainland, we traveled uh, in, a, in a boat to go to this island, Umboy Island. And we spent two weeks there uh, hoping to get video and photo of the animal itself. And I had gone there with the assumption that there were quite a few, at least 10 or 20 there on the island Unfortunately, by the time I left two weeks later, I was convinced that it was only one animal on the island, and it's in the dense jungles. It's very hard to find. I never got any kind of view myself. My interpreter, um, Luke Pena, he only got a very brief uh, view at night from a distance without being able to see any details about the body. But, um, yeah, we got some good interviews, though. Perhaps we can go into those interviews. Absolutely. Yeah, they had... um, Particular, uh, as I was running out of time and money and I had to leave and get ready to leave, I was able to go into the, deeper into the, to the jungle, into a village there, uh, deeper in the island. 
and talk with uh, three eyewitnesses. Uh, there's all three young young men who had seen the Ropen in clear daylight in the middle of the day about 10 years earlier uh, when they had gone up as boys, you know, about 12, 14 years old, that kind of age. And there's seven of these boys that went up together to what's called Lake Pung, P-U-N-G, which is a crater lake um, uh, in near the center of the island. And there they, uh, not too long after they arrived there, the Ropen uh, flew over the lake, uh, not too far above the surface of the lake, scared the boys almost to death. They just took off, ran home, and uh, were just terrified of the, the, the creature. Uh, I could probably go into some of the things that Gideon told me. Gideon gave me the most information. His name is uh, Gideon Coro. Okay. And he... Um, uh, seemed credible to me. I think we should, maybe I should mention this, that I'm, I was a forensic videographer, so part of my, a, sm- a small part, but still a part of my professional work was I needed to be able to have some way of measuring, getting an idea of the credibility of an eyewitness when I'm videotaping them, because I don't want to get involved with a case where I feel that somebody's being dishonest. So in other words, I, I had some feeling and uh, uh, experience with with videotaping uh, people for the intent of getting the truth so that I could prepare a video for the court in a court case uh, uh, with a, not uh, uh, criminal cases. I didn't deal with you know, that sort of thing, with, but with um, uh, lawsuits and so on, what we call lawsuits in the United States. Um but I was able to determine the best of my ability. I was able to see that they're very credible. These three young men are very credible. And uh, I believed what they told me about the rope. And Gideon said that I asked him uh, about the tail. He said, yes, I had a tail. Okay. Uh, how long was the tail? Well, he didn't answer immediately. He looked to his uh, left and looked at the ground and looked back and forth at the ground. And then he looked back at me and without hesitation then, he says, seven meter, which is seven meters, which is astonishing. Mm. Even if he was exaggerating or somehow mistaken, uh, it's obviously that what, what this flying creature was was nothing like um, the large fruit bats that they have in that part of the world. It's uh, no, no fruit bat, which is also called a flying fox, has any tail hardly at all. But for seven meters, um, well, in the United States, we we don't use the metric system too much, but that's 23 feet. That's yeah. that's not a flying fox, whatever it is. It's not that. Um, it's obvious not any kind of bird. Yeah, I was say that would rule out uh, uh, all birds. Yeah, it rules out it rules out everything. I mean, and this is not some something in the dark. People sometimes misunderstand. And say, oh, these Americans have gone off to the jungle, and, and people see. Uh, things go bump in the night or in the dark, they, something moves and, and they don't see it well. Now this is the middle of the day, uh, clear day, they, and the, the animal was flying oh, right over the lake, so there's no obstruction to their view. Uh, if they did exaggerate, still, it was an extremely large animal that scared these boys. There's seven of them, you know, and they're not, these are not boys that are going to run away at the sight of a, fruit bath. That's what they have for a soup if they can catch one of these bats. 
it's, it's one of the foods they have if they can get the mm. ketchup. So it's definitely not a bat. Um, and it does correlate with other eyewitnesses, both natives and Westerners. That one Australian named Dwayne, uh, I mean, one Australian named, uh, oh, Brian Hennessy, this is 1971, and one uh, American named Dwayne Hodgkinson in 1944. And their descriptions do have indications that they believe that these are the same, this is the same species. It's a very long tail, very large animal. No feathers. Uh, a cone, kind of a horn-like um, head crest on the back of the head coming out, uh, going out uh, over toward the, the, the neck, over the neck. Uh, it's very strange. It's, it has, certainly has some characteristics of, of some kind of pterosaur and the shape is like a particular kind of rampharynchoid pterosaur that's called, um, Sortis pelosis, but only in shape, not in size. The fossils for this type is much, much smaller than what people describe nowadays when they get a sight. It's extraordinary. Hmm. And how do they describe those those two guys there that you mentioned? How did they describe the wings looking? Yes, the wings, that was something I didn't realize. They were speaking English somewhat. Especially Gideon. Now they have schools on Umboy where they do English as one of the subjects. So I was a little surprised. I'd already learned a little bit of the talk pisan language, uh, hardly anything of the Kovai language. It's just, uh, but I did learn a little talk pisan, so I was able to communicate occasionally with a few words in that language. But they answered me in, in uh, at least Gideon answered me in English, and his brother um, Wesley answered me in English. Um, the third young man, his name was, um, oh, let's see, getting corner. His name was, um, Mesa Augustine. Mesa. Mesa preferred to use his village language, so we had the translator say what that was, but now I haven't got so involved with that, I forgot the original question. At the wings. But wingspan, yeah. I used the word wings, how big were the wings, but the problem is, even though Gideon was seemed to be speaking well in English, it's not a language they very often use. It's something they learn in school, I'm sure, but not very. You know, not they're really not very adept at English. Uh, I think what happened when I said wings is he caught the word wing and didn't and thought perhaps that it was a particular accent and didn't recognize that I was referring to the plural. So. Uh, after I finished my expedition, I went home. I started analyzing everything that happened. I realized, oh dear, it was not clear. I believe he thought I meant one wing. The concept of wingspan is not necessarily obvious to people of other cultures. Uh, to, to think of two wings as being one thing is, is, is not necessarily a, a normal way of thinking with people in third world countries. <clears throat> so when he said that estimated the wingspan is seven meter, I think he met uh, one wing, which is which it seems you know for people in our culture it seems practically impossible. How could anything alive have a wingspan that's twice of uh, twenty three feet? But mm. there are other eyewitnesses. The one scientist in particular, his I, he wants to be anonymous, but he and his wife had a sighting. And he estimated the wingspan of what he saw in Australia. This was Perth, Australia, in um, 
oh, as a late 20th century. I'm not, I better not say for sure that the year is as far as I can put it. It was late in the 20th century. And that animal um, was more like a flying lizard, but it was, the wingspan was more closer to 50 feet than 30 feet. And this is a scientist. That, he, he felt strange saying this, but he said his, 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 the best guess he can give was it's closer to 50-foot wingspan than 30 feet. And this is in Perth, Australia. So even though it seems extraordinary that these young men would encounter anything uh, alive with such a huge wingspan, it does uh, correlate with what other people have recorded uh, and, and, and reported to me, I should say. They've reported to me directly. Most of my... Um, uh, information is direct eyewitness accounts. In other words, I'm either interviewing somebody face-to-face, like in the case of these boys, or else someone has sent me an email or a phone call I received. So, so I'm not just repeating uh, anecdotes or rumors. I'm telling the best I can my memory of uh, uh, and my records of, of what the people tell me. Okay, cool. So how many countries have you had witnesses uh, contact you from? Well, from five continents, I can just list uh, some of them. Hmm. Besides Papua New Guinea and Australia, I've also had the sighting of two um, two pilots in one plane flight that was between Indonesia, as I recall, and Australia a number of years ago. They're also anonymous, but that was a, a, that was northwest of Australia over the sea. And then I have sighting reports. Well, one indirect report from India. I'm looking for more people there to contact me. But I also have eyewitness sightings from uh, Philippines. Uh, uh, let's see. I'll, I'll go on that direction, going west into Africa, uh, the countries of Namibia. I believe it's uh, Vintuk, Namibia, and also a sighting in Sudan. Africa and uh, another one I, I don't recall the, the country it was in South Central Africa but then going on I have reports from uh, Spain and that was actually a British man who was an uh, English man who, um, who was visiting Spain one night had a sighting and then there's a sighting report from the uh, Netherlands uh, several from England a number of them in England and then I have one from Afghanistan. I forgot that's another part of the world. But then going on to the West, I have reports from Cuba, the Caribbean, over the sea in the Caribbean, two of those nighttime sightings of bioluminescent flying fish. And I have sightings from Mexico, Canada, and, of course, <coughs> excuse me, most of my reports that I receive are from the United States. Yeah. I think people will be surprised to hear just how many places uh, these things are still being seen. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us about the one? Cause I, you know, I'm interested to hear about the one in that was sighted over Shropshire in England. So, I mean, yeah. do you have that one to hand? Yeah, there are two of them. I have both of them here. Uh, let's see which one we should handle first. Probably the one from... I don't use the full name, but uh, I think I can just use the first name. It would be Save Shropshire has a lot of ladies with this name, Rebecca. But she um, she's a mother of four. She's 32 years old. At least she was in 
2017, I guess it was. She's actually, I mean, this. Um, she considers herself perfectly healthy, doesn't have no, no, any problem with narcotics or prescription pills, or doesn't drink. A very serious uh, lady. And she had a sighting, um, let me see what when this would be. It would be, uh, I think, September of 2017. It was about 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and went in the garden to play with her cat. It's her, her usual routine. She lives near a wildlife preserve, she says, so she knows the birds and wildlife and hawks and, and eagles and heron, geese, and swans. She knows about those uh, birds. They fly overhead and she hears their calls, but she heard something very strange, screech, very strange screech, and never heard it before. And she, oh, let me see. And then she looked up and she saw two, this is her words, I saw two pterodactyl side-by-side flying past the tree. Now, at first I had to check myself because the first thing I thought was, those are bloody big birds, that's no lie. But what struck me was that it had a giant-sized beak and wings had no feathers. And uh, so she goes on explaining that she also had one of her children had a sighting on a different day. And... uh, uh, I don't see any problem from my perspective. You know, I, I interview people for, you know, 16 years, I interview people. So there's nothing that I can tell that's any problem with the sighting report. It's just from our cultural perspective, it's shocking and strange, you know, how could that be? But um, anyway, her um, Shropshire, I've been there in 1972, driving through with an on a, as a tourist and uh, my my ancestors are from that part of England on my father's side. Um, not Shropshire itself; it's one of the other uh, central areas. I forgot exactly where, but my ancestors are from there. That's great, greatly interested in that. And um, uh, but I see nothing, no problem with it. But then after a while, this is uh, let me see. There's the other sighting in Shropshire. Uh, it could have been a number of miles away, not in the same neighborhood, but uh, that was from a man who apparently he just watched a video about pterosaurs and became aware of this woman's sighting there. But his sighting, and here with the lady sighting, Rebecca, that was in September of 2017. But he saw one, um, let's see, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Valentine's Day, but it was the same year. So his sighting was earlier that year. It was in the Silken Way, which is, uh, I forgot the name of that uh, uh, nature preserve uh, park area. I forgot the name of it. But uh, uh, he saw it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, let's see if I can get it. He said, he estimated the wingspan was 4 to 6 feet, mottled uh, grayish-brown coloration. And, uh, yeah, he he had a smartphone uh, at the time, but it happened too quick. This is normal. Mm-hmm. Maybe, uh, Lee, I should talk about this a little bit, because people are often wondering, yeah, yeah. well, we have these, all these sightings, how in the world can you have no photographs, no videos? <laughs> it's a good question. It's the normal, there's the reasons we don't have all these photographs and videos. For in this case, the man just didn't have time. It was it just flew further in front of him. And was gone. I mean, I've um, 
and I've had this experience before, and I'm a professional uh, videographer, and I work with with, with uh, video professionally, and I've noticed if, you, if you're out somewhere and you see something you really like to, to record, sometimes there's just no time. You, you, you can grab your phone out of your pocket as fast as you can, get it, try to get it into the video mode or photograph mode, and sometimes whatever it is you want to record, just not wait for your for your hands to be able to get that done, and that's quite common. Mm. So that's two sightings in the same year, 2017, and I see nothing, no problem with this particular port either. Um, no problem at all. It's it doesn't seem to be. Uh, these don't seem to be persons that are trying to get attention or anything. Generally, when people in our culture, the Western culture, I call, uh, I like to refer to Western cultures, which is, includes a lot of Western Europe, but people would not uh, make up a story by seeing a pterodactyl generally, unless they really have seen something strange that looks like a pterodactyl, because it presents a problems. Uh, I, I'll give you an example. One lady in the United States said, this is not unusual, not unusual at all. Uh, she, this is not many years ago, perhaps two years ago. And she says, I, I, I told my mother about what I saw, and she thinks I'm crazy. Well, yeah. if, if your mother thinks you're crazy, who else? Who's, who are you going to tell? You know? the, and I often get this, oh, my, my, my husband thinks I'm crazy, my my wife thinks I'm crazy. You know that family members don't believe you. Who's who's going to believe you? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. There's that's one that's one particular extreme. There's there's other cases where people in the family will have some belief and and, and seem to, to to go along with it. Maybe I can give an example that's that's important for my estimates of the number of people that have seen these animals. Uh, Lee, or her name is, oh, sorry, not, I wasn't talking to you, Lee, but this, this girl named Cynthia Lee, mm. um, she um, had a sighting in Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, I believe, is the capital of North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. It's a, it's a big city in North Carolina. And uh, there have been a number of sightings there. I've, I've received four sightings, I believe, just in that city alone. And... She reported to be her sighting. She she is in training to become a veterinarian's assistant. I don't I don't know exactly the term that we use for it uh, here in this country, but it's, it's a, somebody that's, that would be an official helper for a veterinarian. And so she knows something about animals and birds. Yeah. She's not uh, on the average uh, person in that sense. And she had no doubt it was a pterosaur. And, and what I found interesting is she told me. Uh, a little bit later in, in her communication with me, she told me that her mother and uncle, and I believe she meant that uh, this is a long time ago when her her mother was a child, her mother and uncle had seen one too. I presume it's in Raleigh, North Carolina, but it might not, not be necessarily in that same city. But they'd seen one when they were children, and they're, Mother didn't believe them. That means uh, Cynthia's grandmother didn't believe uh, Cynthia's mother and uncle. Uh, but that kind of uh, indicates something to me uh, that I just recently have been able to come to some uh, some kind of estimate, a crude estimate of the number of sightings that people have in the United States, and it's it's it is strange. It's very shocking, but. 
other people have reported the same thing. They have seen a parent pterosaur. They've reported to me and tell me that they know somebody else that has a sighting. Well, that uh, possible that that in itself might have helped them have courage to contact me because I'm you know, I'm not a a friendly celebrity that you know just uh, you know, that people can find easily. You have to really search online to get me. Um, not deeply, but I have a thousand web pages and blog posts, you know, online. Mm. So it's, it's not that hard, but I'm not, I'm not somebody that somebody just automatically will contact and send me an email just because they saw something strange flying by. And, uh, just uh, recently in the last few days, I've come to, to, to divide these sightings into two groups, actually three, but we're talking about two. One is sometimes a person will see what I believe is a real living, a non-extinct living pterosaur, and they don't get a very good view of it, so they don't tell their their mother or a family member, I saw a pterodactyl. They won't say that. They'll mm-hmm. say, well, I saw the strangest bird thing. I, was, what, I don't know what kind of bird that was. That is what I call the um, the second type. Those people rarely contact me, almost never. The, uh, the only time they would contact me is if they find out somebody else has had a better sighting, and so that gives them courage to, to speak up. But the number one type sighting is a person like, um, the, well, like Cynthia or Rebecca or this other man in Shropshire, who are are absolutely close to sure, are absolutely sure that they've seen a pterosaur. They they occasionally contact me. I'd say about one person in a hundred in the United States, about one percent of those of that group will eventually contact me usually by email. That's the first group. But the second group is there are about three times as many, maybe or approximately, I'm just making a crude guess, but there may be three times as many of those sightings where people will not contact me at all under any conditions except if they find out Somebody else they know or, or trust or uh, or something has had a better sighting. Um, so that's and I, I could give you my estimate now. Um, let me get to my my records here. Um, in the United States, the those two those two combined the the first the first type and the second type uh, combined are about 150,000 Americans. And I know that sounds strange. How can there be 150,000 Americans have seen a pterodactyl? How is that possible? But remember, three-fourths of those um, never reported to, to, almost never, to a cryptozoologist like myself. The, 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 the ones uh, that contact me would be like 37,000, 30. But there is about 1% of those uh, who are have a good sighting, a first-class sighting, type 1. There may be 37, 38,000 of those, but those persons, basically, they will tell family and they will go online sometimes. And as, as far as I can tell, as soon as they go online and find out that it's a real animal, then they say, oh, good, I'm not crazy, and they'll forget it. They say, great, yeah, yeah, yeah. have to worry about that. So well, that's fine. I'm not crazy. I didn't have a hallucination or something. And they'll kind of forget about it. Only about 1%, uh, as far as I can tell, which is about 300, 400, only those will contact me. 
And some of them will not contact me, but they will contact another cryptozoologist or they'll try to contact the local uh, government officials, which will never help at all. It's, it's, you know, if you're in the United States, never try to contact the police or the fish and game people. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Or the forestry service. They'll never be at help if you've seen a pterodactyl. Yeah. Never. It's, it's impossible. But I'm glad that at least 1% of them contact me. And even though it sounds strange, they um, apparently are in the tens of thousands who, who actually had these good sightings. I imagine that's the same for quite a lot of uh, cryptids, you know. There's mm-hmm. loads of people out there that have seen them that, like you say, never ever report it to, not even to the closest family. Yes, and it's not quite a pressure problem with Bigfoot here in, in uh, North America and the United States uh, because it's uh, so highly publicized that yeah. I think you won't be thought crazy often. Sometimes, sometimes you will, but you won't necessarily anybody think that you're uh, have any hallucination or anything because you're poor to Bigfoot. Because sometimes, if you're, you you could have made a mistake and seen a bear, we have lots of black bears all over different parts of our the country here. Yeah, somebody seen a bear. We have, I mean, we have cases in this country where you've got hundreds of people contacting the police saying they've seen werewolves. Oh, you know, and hundreds of people contacting the police saying they've seen wolves, and we don't have wolves. No. Um so. They're seeing something, but they're not. The, the, the first point you say, the first point of contact is the police. You know, who, who else do you tell? Um, yeah. And then obviously the police say, you know, obviously there's no wolves, which these people know. Uh, and then they just go on about the business after that. It's like, well, okay, that's dropped then. But um, yeah, I'm interested. Uh, I'm interested to wear some more sightings and, uh, uh, you know. You know, ones that have got really good descriptions. You know, people like you, credible people that you think give you the best description of the, what they've seen. Yes. Well, I could tell you some of the the, the better ones. I just uh, a few days ago I, I uploaded a video to YouTube. It's called um, "Giant Pterodactyl in California," and I I have forty one or a little bit more forty one sightings in California. And seven of them I described in the video. It's a kind of a music video, upbeat music. And um, there's some of them, particularly these seven, which are very large estimates of size. Uh, um, and, and, and these are credible eyewitnesses. I mean, one person is professional. I can't reveal too many details, but I'll tell you, he's either a policeman or a, an attorney lawyer, or he is um, what we call him in the United States a lawyer. Or he, or, or he's a medical doctor. He's a really professional person. You know, somebody is not going to, in that kind of work, is not going to just make a joke to contact me and make a joke. It's just, you know, I, I checked it out. And he is the professional that he says he is. He is definitely into that profession. And he's not, he, uh, not the kind of person that would, uh, make a joke like that. So I believed him, but his, his creature was, um, Oh, it was just, it was a few years ago. It was, um, more than four or five years ago. It's been, it's been a, a, a number of years ago, but it was in, um, Irvine, California, just, um, oh, less than a mile from the university. <clears throat> it's a 
California State University at Irvine. And that sighting was very clear in the daylight, and the animal flew right in front of his car. And this is just like um, just a little bit above the road, very low, just right over the road that he was driving on. And he said the length of that animal it was pretty much the, the, the width of the road. I, I went there myself and measured it off. It was 30 feet from one end of, one side of the road to the other. And half of that length was the tail. So in other words, his estimate of the size would indicate, if he's correct, the tail was 15 feet long. That is kind of uh, getting close to the ballpark of some of these people in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, yeah. And so this would is that in, put the body at 15 feet long as well then? Yes, yeah. from the end of the beak to the wherever the, you want to say the tail connects. So that would be difficult to say exactly, of course, but yeah. that's just an estimate, you know, as people best people can tell when they see it flying by. But this particular one, he says, there's no doubt it has had no feathers. You could see the kind of a wrinkly appearance that sort of reminded him somewhat of like other people do. It's sort of a wrinkly, kind of a, a bat-like surface rather than feathers. Yep. Um, like a membrane, yeah? Yes, more like skin than feathers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you get some uh, descriptions of hair, but um, you know, really, to be realistic, if if you see somebody, uh, some people on the on the beach uh, swimming in their swimming suits, uh, from a distance, humans look like they're hairless and have no hair except on the top of their head. But of course, you know, whenever you're, you know, when you're close to a human being, you can see that there's there's hair on the arms, or hairs on the legs. You know, the humans are, are you know, have hair. Mm. But um, when people see a pterosaur, they're just they're just their attention is caught to certain things. Occasionally, they'll they'll notice if it had hair. But generally, it's things like the shape of the head, the size of the animal in general, the size of the wings, or the long tail, or the appendage at the end of the tail, which is interesting because that suggests a ramphorinchoid pterosaur type, and a head crest, um, the way that it flies, the way that the wings flap, which is different than birds. These reported ropins or other pterosaurs, they, they have a different type of a wing flapping than, than birds have. Is it almost like a glide? Yes, well, there is a lot of gliding involved, but it's, um, I'll see if you, now there's, uh, I have to be sure that people understand that there are exceptions. I'm tell, telling you some of the things that have, uh, that have struck me about some of the sightings are that sometimes the, the creature will glide for a while and then it will flap. Mm. Now certain birds have a certain way of doing that, like the pelicans that I'm aware of here in North America. They have a certain number of wing flaps. I forget the number. <coughs> There's a three or four or five or seven. I don't remember, but it's a certain number of wing flaps, and then they'll glide. But this, uh, the pterosaurs, the large pterosaurs are different, and the wing flapping frequency is different. One about one that would be like the one seen in Irvine, California, was had a wing flapping frequency of about two seconds, or pretty close to that, where from downstroke to downstroke, you know, the whole cycle. Two seconds is very slow for any kind of bird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that doesn't sound like any, any bird flapping I know of. And, um, and we get the same thing from, uh, uh, Dwayne Hodgkinson in the 1944 sighting in, uh, near Finchhaven, New Guinea, which is in the clear sighting in daylight. Uh, um, 
and uh, the two two American uh, soldiers had a clear view, and he estimated the wing flapping frequency at approximately two seconds. You know? hmm. Have you ever heard any reports of these creatures on the ground? Yes, oh yeah, I have a number of those too. Um, they're not as common, but uh, well, I mean, I could go over whatever comes to my mind. Uh, one case in, um, I believe it was Southern Oregon State in the northwestern United States, and that was a teenage boy riding his bicycle, and suddenly uh, right, right in front of him on the road ahead were two, what he called, I think he might have used the word um, pterodactyls, two of them on a fence, apparently in a courtship uh, behavior of some type, and he almost fell off his bicycle. This is shocked. And um, they're just sitting on the fence in, their, in the claws of their uh, of their, the, um, their feet, wrapped completely around the, um, the large uh, fence post. And he was shocked and wondering if they were going to attack him, but I think they were, they were more interested in courting each other at the time. But um, we, we do have another sighting in uh, north-central United States, and then we try to remember the state. It's it's one of those, like perhaps Michigan or Wisconsin, but I don't remember the exact state offhand. But he was just walking home from fishing, I believe, in the middle of summer a number of years ago, and, <coughs> and he heard some clicking, and he looked into a little um, overhang, not not what you call a cliff necessarily, but an overhang from a from a cliff where it's like almost like a miniature little cliff in the side of the hill there. And it was a large uh, brownish uh, colored creature that was, uh, that was uh, uh, trying to break up, break apart this fish that it had caught. <coughs> and we do occasionally have uh, accounts of a animal on the ground. In this case, it was actually eating a fish. I mean, it's interesting that people would report seeing them on the ground. It, it, you know, Assuming that these, you know, a lot of people will think this is made up accounts, it'd be, yeah. you know, less likely that they would report seeing them on the ground, I would say. Um, yes, and so it also uh, indicates that it, obviously in this case it was not some type of mechanical um, flying device like people have uh, mechanical pterodactyls that are, uh, yeah, that are yeah. it's flying around. I mean, Anything mechanical would never be seen on the ground eating a fish. <laughs> yeah, indeed, yeah. Regarding what we know about these pterosaurs uh, from the fossil record and this kind of stuff, is would you be able to pinpoint roughly locations where they would be more likely to be seen? Well, um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, we... Uh, we haven't, uh, of course, sightings from all over the world. We need to keep in mind these these animals, and I, and I thought the same thing that most people did in 2004. You know, if if there is something like this alive, it's only in a remote jungle. You know, some place where people haven't explored, and then maybe there's some a few of them still alive in yeah, yeah. some remote jungle in in Africa or the Amazon or Papua New Guinea. That's what my thought when I went on my expedition, or at least somewhat thinking like that. And um, but then as soon as I got home and I started publishing books and all these online reports of this, people started contacting me from all over the world, including the United States. And uh, the animals are not restricted to any particular part. They're nocturnal and they're uncommon. 
We have to remember three things about these animals. In Western countries, <coughs> we're indoctrinated to believe that they all became extinct. That's what we're raised in as children. We're taught oh, all dinosaurs and things like that were became extinct a long time ago. And so we have this cultural uh, kind of bias against living animals like that. And then we also have this situation where most of them at least, if not all of them, are nocturnal. These animals come out generally only at night. They're not common. Nothing like an owl. I mean, I've seen an owl a number of years ago in Long Beach, California, flying across the freeway where I was driving uh, in, in broad daylight. And I could, you can tell an owl is different from other birds because, you know, the, the head is so different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and owls are common. I found a dead one across the street from my house in Long Beach, California. The owls are, are common compared with, with these animals. These are not common. Mm. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily rare in the sense that they're in danger of extinction or anything like that, but Again. they're scattered, they're scattered all over the world. In other words, they travel. They, 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 ha- they have no restrictions on, on, on passports and visas and, and, and national borders or anything like that. They, they just go wherever they fly. Mm. What about, and, what about climate though? Uh, I think there is some correlation with the, the numbers, but it's, I can't say for sure. They're, they're, um, they're seen in different climates. They're yeah. seen in elevation sometimes, uh, and they're seen in Canada, or quite a few sightings in Canada. They're not restricted to warmer places, and they're not restricted to being somewhere when, when it's warm. In other words, you have uh, more sightings in the northern United States and Canada Perhaps there may be more sightings in the warmer time of year, like summer or, or fall or spring. But you still occasionally will have a sighting in the winter. Now, you shouldn't be too shocked at this, really, because many animals that are small, and you think, how can they survive a winter in Canada? You know, all these little things, mice and, the, and these little uh rodents and tiny reptiles and amphibians, how do they survive? Well, they they have ways that they survive. And we have um, reports on different climates, different times of year, different parts of the world. They're, they're not in one species, though. This is strange also. The, the modern pterosaurs are not confined to one species. They just dominate uh, one particular type with a long tail. That's the dominant type in numbers but they're not restricted to having long tails okay and um am i right in thinking that as these creatures pterosaurs progressed uh, evolutionary speaking they they actually lost the tail as they went along rather than gained the tail well yeah i don't myself personally i do not um um believe everything that's commonly taught about evolution in in particular in in terms of this idea that the shorter tail ones are the more recent ones that went extinct 65 million years ago and that the other ones with long tails lived earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, based upon very limited information, all the fossils we have of pterosaurs are actually very small compared with other things like certain dinosaurs. Uh, fossils of pterosaurs are particularly rare, and there's a dominant theory in Western science that they're generally uh, uh, animals that started out with long tails, and then gradually they 
they were replaced by the ones with short tails, though there's overlapping. But but what we have today is that the ones that people assumed were more ancient are the ones that are more common. And this is a, not just a little bit more common, but there there's a, a lot more common. Yeah. Long tails dominate. They dominate. One particular um, statistics I got early in the year 2013 was seemed extreme, but at that time the numbers I had indicated dominance of uh, like I think 20 to one, if I recall. Uh, every every time you you see you have a report of a of a living pterosaur that has a short tail, you have 20 that have a long tail. That's a little extreme. I don't want people to think that that's actually a a representation of the of the of the actual numbers of animals with long and short tails, but it indicates the probability that is very clear that the long tails do dominate. Yeah, that, and again, that's based on the people that have come forward. Um, yes. Yeah. So, I, 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 well, it's a little detail in it, but I thought it was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So, given what you know about these creatures, because I've got a list of. Um, possibilities, um, ranging from, uh, well, they're all extreme, I suppose, in this, in this instance. But, but speaking to people about this, I, people have told me different, uh, their ideas of what these creatures could be and etc. And I want to get your opinion on some of them. Um, so for you, is this creature what people are seeing? Do you believe that this creature is, uh, you know, flesh and blood? Yeah, so that's a good question because there are people from different cultures, including Western cultures, who sometimes uh, will think that they are not actual physical beings, that there's some type of strange paranormal explanation for them. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have any problem with believing that. I mean, I believe in spiritual things, but these particular animals, there's just too much um, that seems to correlate with a physical animal type of interpretation like the the man that's had the sighting of the the one that was banging a fish against a rock if, as i recall it was trying to break apart the flesh of the fish so that it could swallow it more easily it, it's a very animalistic type of behavior you know and there's another one and um, i believe it's in ohio where a man saw one fly over the over a bridge of a small river there the uh, in Antwerp, Ohio, and that one caught a sparrow in midair and flight. Is the animal is the parent pterodactyl with long tail that uh, caught the sparrow? That's very animalistic, you know, eating a bird or, or a fish is what you expect from physical animals, you know. Yeah, so that I mean, because that rules out ghosts. Then not, these yeah. people, are not, these are not seeing ghosts of these creatures that used to exist. Yeah, and they also catch fish at night. Some of them with the bioluminescence, and they yeah. and they back and forth. Uh, and, and you know, we have clamshells, giant clamshells that are drug up from the coast of Umboy Island in Papua New Guinea, and they're dragged drug up far up inland. A very physical kind of <laughs> eating kind of a being, physical. But you know, yeah. but there, there are a lot of uh, ideas, though, including the the natives in places like Umboy Island, where they believe it's a spiritual. But in those cultures, sometimes we need to remember <coughs> that they can, they sometimes will have a dual interpretation or a dual concept of something where it has a spiritual nature and a physical nature. We also get that in Native American accounts, I believe, where 
where the idea is that it can be spiritual, sometimes like a spirit, and then other times it's more like physical. And it, it's kind of like that. So some people have that. But for me, I, I believe they're these are physical. Hmm. What about the fact that they could be man-made? Well, uh, we can look into that um, uh, as terms of uh, mechanical devices. Um, no, I don't mean uh, that. I mean, uh, like the Jurassic Park model. Oh, yes. Oh, that's <laughs> that. that um, I can see where people would, would get that. The Jurassic Park is very popular. But if you go back at the sightings themselves and look at the details going back in history, you'll see that they, they don't jump out at a particular time when when Westerners had particular scientific skills that might have been able to to uh, possibly, I don't believe so, but possibly have been able to manipulate DNA in such a way that they could uh, cause a live dinosaur pterosaur to, to come into being. But it just goes way back in, into the beginning of the 20th century, into the 19th century, and then you have all these things before the 19th century about dragons and mm. And there's just, they don't, the, the sightings don't correlate with anything like a, a particular time in history when you might expect a, a advanced a civilization to create something from DNA. Whether, whether it's even possible at all, uh, yeah, even at this yeah. point. So, But yeah, I mean, obviously you've got the fire, uh, the Thunderbirds, um, mm-hmm. which could be this creature being seen. Going way back, so yeah. Yeah, yeah I just had a um, matter of fact. I just my most recent uh, update to YouTube is a very short video called uh, "Were Dragons Real?" Hmm. And then it suggests that maybe dragons were not a hundred percent fictional in every aspect of their <coughs> of the legends. You know, in past generations, there may be some truth behind uh, some of those stories about dragons. Possibly. I mean, with the dragon, I, I, I find it a little bit less believable because the sheer weight involved in them creatures. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if depictions were to be believed, um, to get something that heavy off the ground with, you know, it's got to generate some power. Um, well, people generally, when they think of, uh, they, hear, they hear the word dragon, they think of the most common uh, Paintings of them, uh, which are uh, gigantic uh, animals of great weight, and that's not necessarily the people that 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 drew or or painted the 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 pictures of them were eyewitnesses themselves. That's what we have to watch out for is is what happens in cultures is you get certain ideas that are carried from one artist to another, and you're getting distortions that might have been amplified sometime in, in earlier in history. And so who knows uh, if, if maybe the, the actual animal was not very close to the appearance of what you see in the pictures. You know? mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, it could be more uh, pterodactyl-like or pterosaur-like. Yeah. So. And we do have the long tails of some dragons, you know, with the, with the kind of a uh, appendage at the end of it, kind of a triangular or spade shape mm-hmm. so I guess then in closing do you, do you feel like this creature may may you know, well do you think this creature could possibly be captured at some point 
Oh, yeah. We had attempts at that in California in the Central Valley a number of years ago, uh, finding it very difficult. It had to do at night because they only came through at night. And they spent quite a while trying to get this device which would snap and catch them in flight, and it, it never turned out. One time, at least, uh, one of the, the flying creatures did bang into it mm. and did collide with the with the device that was that was supposed to catch it, but it didn't succeed. There, there has been a, a one capture in uh, Papua New Guinea, according to native to, uh, stories of a man that found one on a beach of a small island once and was able to tie a rope around it, and then the other side of the rope tied to a log. That mine died in the attempt, though, and the animal itself got got free. So it's not very uh, popular pastime for the natives to try to do that. No, well, it's not advisable. No. I mean, these things, uh, presumably they had rows of uh, teeth. Oh, they have means of defending themselves, yeah. So... Well, there, there is another case in Papua New Guinea where there, somebody reported one of these, like a roping that was caught in a cage, and the, the natives kept it, at least for a while, they kept it there because if they said, if they turned it loose, it would come and, 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 um, and endanger the people in the village. So they mm-hmm. kept it, they kept it there. But that's, of course, an anecdote. I don't have any direct account of that. Nothing directly do I have remotely like direct account. Was that, is that more uh, as as revenge, or is that more of a spiritual? I don't know what happened, but it sounds mm. like sounds looks like it could have happened. I mean, the natives are very um, resilient. You know, I, I told you about this one man that he was just happened to go on the beach at this this little deserted island and happened to be there when the a ropin was sleeping on the sand of the beach and very very quickly and uh, thought he would he'd be able to tie it down and, and the report does not go into details how he died just says that the animal flew up and broke free and the man and the man died um, but that's a long story there there is a particular defense that they have uh, but that's a long story I don't think we can go all night into that yeah I think I read a story actually about a, a, a small child that was picked up by well the article said a large bird, um, yeah. but you know you never know. Yeah, that's the problem. Is and that was that might be the one in Illinois, if I remember right, many years ago. But yeah, I think it was. It's, 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 it's possible it could have been. There are some reports of a large bird that's larger than the condors we have in America. So it's, it's possible there's some unknown large bird, possibly. Well, I mean, I didn't know there was nocturnal, so that's uh, interesting to know. Um, yeah. But yeah, but do you think the these sightings are going to increase because it's getting into mainstream news articles now? I've read a few. So once this gets out there a bit more, do you think that will increase the likelihood of people contacting you? Yes, it does, and I think it's actually happened in the last few years. Uh, for example, uh, the last couple of years, I, I've seen an increase in the number of reports I get. I used to get just a, a, a few or half a dozen a year, but I'm getting a lot more than that now. It's just coming in much faster. I think it's because it's getting more known. There are television programs, and at least American television, uh, about people going off and doing searches for strange creatures like this. And, 
and I hope I've, I've been able to help some with my my books and my writings. I hope, and now I have a lot more uh, YouTube videos out. If anybody's interested, the the channel on YouTube is um, called uh, Protect Animal Life. Protect Animal Life, but basically it's about parent pterosaurs. Mm, absolutely, I'll definitely include the link in the show notes. Um. And I and I've been watching the videos and they are interesting. I like the way you put them together. Actually, um, okay. you know, it brings the story to life. So yeah, they're interesting. Thank you. Is this, is this the only thing that you you're currently working on then, uh, cryptid wise? Yes, I specialize. I mean, I, my associates, have, some of them have gone to Africa looking for dinosaurs, uh, the Macaulay and Bembe and yeah, things yeah. like that. But myself, uh, just this, I have plenty to do just with these reports, but. Apparent pterosaurs. Okay, cool. Well, did you, did you have some books that you wanted to mention before you? Well, yes. Uh, none of them are real, realistic. The largest, none of them are religious, I should say. Uh, in general, they're cryptozoology books, but the largest one is called Searching for Opens and Finding God. And that really is a cryptozoology book. Religion is not a major portion of it, so don't be put off by the thing about it, all about big book about religion, but it is cryptozoology, and then there's live pterosaurs in America, and then for teenagers and children there's a newer one, it's a smaller book called um, The Girl Who Saw a Flying Dinosaur. And that is that is a real account? Yes, these are all first, uh, almost all of them are first-hand accounts directly to me. Uh, occasionally in, in, in a book I'll, I'll mention something that is not first-hand, but the vast majority of things that I report on and analyze are are reports that come from me from eyewitnesses themselves. Yes. Yeah. Have you got any more, you know, favorite cases that you want to share before we go? Well, um, a fascinating one was just a few miles from where I lived in Long Beach, California, in the city of Lakewood. And that lady uh, had an encounter in the middle of the day with uh, parent Ropen, and it was sitting on the phone line above her head, and the end of the tail of the animal was just like 18 feet away from the end of the lady's nose. So that was a close encounter. And I have no doubt she saw a roping, and that's in Southern California. And what's interesting is after I'd uh, done the research on that and analyzed all the, the, her testimony, that uh, somehow her sister had, had found out about this and she said that she had seen a dragon in that same backyard of that same house in Lakewood, California uh, a few years earlier, but she didn't say anything to anybody. I, I would call that a, a, a type two uh, sighting. She didn't contact anybody about it until she heard about the better sighting that her sister had and then she reported it. What sort of description did the, the lady give of that one that she saw? Uh, it was at it was at night, and she she saw it flying the other side of the Storm Channel Canal, uh, just over uh, behind her backyard. And that one it seemed to be carrying something in its mouth. It wasn't a large animal; it was maybe the size of a medium small cat, perhaps. But it was something that the animal was flying away flying away with, and as it held the animal in, in its mouth. Mm, just interesting why she jumped to dragon, but obviously. Um... <laughs> You can only go well, on what you know, can't you? So her sister, her sister had citing the daytime called it a dragon pterodactyl. She used those two words together, okay. which is interesting. It might be just a way that their family has of of, of thinking about the things or of their experience reading about dragons. I don't know, but that word does come up occasionally, even even in modern times. The word dragon. 
Yeah. Oh, well, well, again, thank you very much for joining me, and uh, I'm definitely going to keep my eyes on the skies. Um, no. Especially now I know that they're possibly in England as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, well, thank you, Lee. I'll definitely have you back on if uh, anything else materialises. I'll keep abreast of it, so thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview. I found it fascinating. Um, if you are interested, you can get his books on Amazon. If you just type in Jonathan Whitcomb, it'll come up. Sightings of Living Pterosaurs is one of them. There's a few on there that he's got. But most of you all have access to YouTube. So if you go across to Protect Animal Life, and again, I will leave the links in the show notes for those who uh, check out the show notes. So go to YouTube and type in Protect Animal Life and subscribe. Let's see if we can get them at least, I don't know, I don't know, most of you will have YouTube and some of you will be interested in this. And The videos are really quite good. Um, you know, he does explain a lot in those videos and gives you, you know, the, the account, the site, and he gives you a little bit of the details behind it and some images and that. So it's, they are worth checking out. If, you, if you're even slightly interested... Go and check them out, and let's see if we can get them another at least 200 subscribers. Yeah, that's not it's not out of the realms of possibility. At least, hopefully, two of you, 200 of you, uh, well, 199 of you, because I've subscribed, will enjoy it and uh, go over there. So that being said, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Have a great 10 days, hopefully, and that'll be when the next episode is out. All being well. Um, come across to Facebook if you're not already go on Facebook search for Roman Supernatural Podcast Hangouts and you'll find us there come and say hello and that just leaves Patreon really go and check it out you know, we can sign up, you can cancel any time I think it's $2 that's that's it really it's $2 a month um, and hopefully, fingers crossed now we're back on schedule hopefully uh, they should start popping up on there more regular. So bear that in mind. But thank you very much for joining me, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Well, they've gone. No, just for now. It wasn't the right time for us to meet. But there'll be other nights, other stars for us to watch. They'll be back. Thank you.